Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Raggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. This is Generation Jihad, the podcast that covers all things in what used to be known as the global war on terror, but we now call the Long War. friend, co-host, and colleague at Foundation for Defense of Democracies, Benham Ben Talablu, is uh, joining me today. Uh, Benham is a senior fellow at FDD, uh, where he focuses on Iranian security and political issues. Uh, Benham knows way more than that. Uh, all of the Shia terror groups uh, sponsored by Iran, missile systems used by these groups. Benham, great to get back on with you with this new year on Generation Jihad. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And uh, looks like just like in 2020, this new year is beginning with a bang. It sure is. I, um, you know, <laughs> when we uh, when we ended the year last year, we ended I ended the year with you and uh, beginning the year with you. It was a, a little under the weather. It's why we couldn't get some podcasts in earlier this week. I just didn't think that when we'd come back, Benham, that we'd have so much to talk about. There's so much that we leave on the floor, um, you know, because we want to try to get these podcasts digestible for for everyone. You know, I'm not going to sit here and yap for three hours. Nobody wants to hear me do that. I wouldn't mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're in this distinct minority. Well, so much going on this week. The Israelis uh, killing uh, Hamas is basically their deputy leader. The ongoing drama with the Houthis in the Red Sea. The U.S. targeting of a militia leader in Iraq, or a commander, actually, is more accurately described. And the Iraqi government freaking out over it, again, threatening to telling the U.S. it's time to leave. And then on top of all of this drama, we get the Islamic State launching an attack in Iran at the grave of Qasem Soleimani at the anniversary of his death. Uh, uh, many people killed and wounded in this attack. Uh, we're going we're gonna to start off with the killing of uh, Hamas's uh, deputy leader, uh, Salah al-Ruri. He was killed on Tuesday, I think that was what, January 2nd, um, uh, in an airstrike by the Israelis in a suburb of uh, Beirut, Lebanon. Uh, Al-Ruri was a founder of the Al-Qassam Brigades, which is essentially what the so-called military wing of Hamas. Hamas is, you know, I, I hate describing things like that, but, you know, the Qassam Brigades, Al-Qassam Brigades is the, essentially the, the, the mili- Hamas's military branch. Um, uh, a, a real nasty individual. Benham, what are the implications of this? The the Hezbollah's furious, the Iranians are mad, the Iraqi militias are angry, the Houthis issued the statement, uh, defiant statement. Uh, this is, first of all, this is a good kill. Uh, the first the first high-value target, in my opinion, that the Israelis took out. We're talking top-tier leadership, uh, um, either inside or outside of Gaza. Um, you know, you'd have to get someone like, uh, you know, the Sinwar brothers, the Muhammad Dave, or... Uh, you know, individuals of that stature, Hania, you know, obviously that's, that's where, um, Aurori, you know, fits on my scale. What are your thoughts about his death and the implications for the region? You know, I think we've spoken about this a little bit before in the Soleimani heyday and aftermath. Um, I think the way these networks are set up and, and, you know, you know, more broadly, uh, about how this stuff happens, the rank and file and the mid ranking versus the top tier for the Sunni side of the street with these terror groups. But I, I tend to be of the view 
that there are a few distinguishing personalities and the rest is actually rather bureaucratic or systematized. Um, but those few distinguishing personalities, the likes of Soleimani, the likes of Oruri, have a personalist connective tissue. They had they're an, they're an individual who is charismatic. They're an individual who is capable. I mean, the boring stuff of terrorist organizing, for lack of a better word. Uh, I mean, let's not forget, uh, I think he was in Turkey for a while, way back. Then he went into Lebanon. In Lebanon, he was instrumental in that fusion center that I think two years ago, Wall Street Journal reported, where it's basically, uh, we have the COAC, I think it's in Qatar. Uh, they have this fusion center where it's basically Hezbollah, Hamas, and IRGC Quds Force all together, thinking, talking, coordinating, planning. and that capability, that bureaucratic longevity gets you to where the, I hate this word, but the professionalism or the the ability to land the blow for a terrorist group uh, can, can, where a terrorist group can become, for lack of a better word, more professional or land a blow. Yeah. And it, it, it's I, individuals I, like Ruri who make Hamas lethal. I, I just want to, you know, look, we shouldn't be afraid to use words like they act as professionals or I respect their abilities. I mean, these are organizations that are, you know, they're deserving of our respect. That doesn't mean I'd like them. That doesn't mean I'd invite them over for dinner. Um, but, you know, they can be act in a professional manner. What, the, what Hamas executed on October 7th, as brutal as it was, was planned and executed in a professional manner, right? It takes a lot of professionalism to keep that secret, to get the teams to breach the fence, and then to organize and strike a different kibbutz and mil and lay siege and overrun military bases we shouldn't be afraid to use terms like professionalism or say i respect them i could hate them and i can and but i still can respect them uh, and their abilities you know so don't don't be afraid to use words like that people take it the way they're going to take it but the reality is is we should have we should recognize these groups for what they are and you know saying that they're acting professionally or saying i respect their abilities the minute you don't respect your enemies who are of this caliber is the minute you you lose to them and frankly I think that's what happened to the Israelis on October 7th. They started looking north. They, they underestimated Hamas's capabilities. They didn't think the, that Hamas would be have the, the chutzpah to carry out an attack like this. So I'll end my rant. No, I, I, I think you're right. And to that end, you know, to get to the heart of your question, I'm sorry if that sounded like I was pontificating, but this guy was a Hamas professional. And he was a hum, not just a Hamas professional because of his organizational capabilities, but because of the liaison role with Iran uh, he was able to play. Um, so in that sense, it is a huge blow. It is perhaps the most important kill of post-October 7. And it is also a very important kill in the axis of resistance world uh, as well. Uh, not just, you know, do you have to, you don't just have to wear an Iranian badge, an IRGCQF badge to be of service to them. Uh, and so Aruri really was of service to them by being such a powerful local actor. Um, so yeah, do I think Hamas is going to go away tomorrow because of this? No. Do I think they will have a harder time? Yes. And the cherry on the Sunday is the kill in Syria with Said Razi and the kill in Beirut with uh, uh, Saad al-Aruri basically exposes one thing uh, that people really forgot just because of the mayhem of post-October 7, which is that Israel's adversaries definitely have quantity. But there are those shining times where Israel has quality. And to be able to pull off this strike, the Salah Rui one in particular, uh, talk about professionalism. They're surveilling, the reconnaissance, the trust building, the network assessments, the ability to blend in, probably human and signals combined. Who knows the exact tradecraft? But this is showing you how this is a 
top-tier professional intelligence service where in one of the most monitored areas by the adversary, our ally Israel can train, plan, execute, and pull this off. Yeah, I concur with that 100%, uh, Venom. That's, that is certainly, that has to be one of the most difficult environments to operate in. And, you know, look, the Israelis carried out assassinations in the heart of, of Iran, in Tehran. That's a that's what professionalism looks like on our side of this, and I do concur. I am a little surprised, given that the um, Israelis have no qualms about launching strikes in Beirut in, or in Lebanon, period, and in Syria, that you're getting high-ranking operatives still uh, still willing to show their faces there um, at this stage. I, I would think they would be a little bit more careful about where, but the reality is, is they have to operate somewhere. Um, and, and this is and this is just a footnote. This is where you know when their professionalism slips, that's always an opportunity too. I this is I'm just saying this because of the anniversary of the Soleimani strike. But I always get laughed at for saying this. But had Soleimani listened to his UN travel ban, not his Trump travel ban, but his UN travel ban, he would have been alive. And the fact is, Soleimani also began to as he got more media coverage in America, and that coverage leaked over into Iran, and this kind of cult of personality and the charismatic authority, all that stuff blended together. Plus the fact that he had an informal chain of command between him and Khamenei, between Iran, him and Iran's literal commander in chief. Um, all of that aside, he began to blur the lines between Iran, Iraq, and Syria. Uh, and that blurring of the lines, that overconfidence, overconfidence is always the most dangerous thing. And it reminds me of that Napoleon quote, never interrupt your enemy when, when he's making a mistake. And to the open source, I'm sure it looked like Soleimani was on the win, um, you know, traveling wherever the hell he liked, posting photos and selfies and whatever. But to the people mind. doing the hard work, the, the boring work uh, that is leads to intelligence wins of the type of, uh, against Soleimani and against Aruri, uh, those are the breadcrumbs that they can follow. And it leads you exactly to that conclusion, which is what you said, Bill, which is if you're a terrorist operator, how the hell are you still showing your face? Yeah, I remember writing something, uh, I'm going to say about a week, within the week of, of him being killed, that he got slaughtered. That he, he, he started to like the limelight. You know, all those pictures of the commanders, like you said, he left breadcrumb of the Shia militia commanders. Um, flies directly into, into Baghdad International, is greeted as a dignitary by Abu Mahdi al-Mahandis, who was another one of these key connective tissue um, top-level leaders. He was killed alongside Soleimani. They, they started to smell themselves a little bit, and this is what happens. And, you know, the professionals, you know, we make mistakes, they mistake, make mistakes. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it is really an interesting to watch all that unfold. I wasn't surprised at all. I was actually surprised that the US, not that the U.S. was able to find him, but that the decision was made by the Trump administration to actually kill him. Um, it certainly was ballsy. Um, and I will say, I do think the Iranians have weathered that storm. It's difficult to place and replace individuals like Arori, like Mohandas and uh, Mossavi, who was killed uh, two weeks ago, and obviously Soleimani. But they do seem to do it. And, and I think the problem there, and I know I've been on this rant a million times, we just don't kill them quick enough. So we don't. We never create that problem where we whittle down the where those top level guys fast enough that the that the people left standing are are there saying, well, what do we do next? How do we organize this? I don't even know these guys. Um, who am I talking to from Iran or Syria or, or Iraq? Those are the. Um, but that being said, as I always say, um, it is necessary to to take these strikes when you can get them. This certainly puts the um, or Aurori's killing has to put Hamas's leaders on notice. 
uh, in places like Turkey and Qatar. But I have a feeling that th- that might be a bridge too far for the Israelis. Those guys, if they die, they're going to have to like drown in a swimming pool or slip on a banana peel and fall down the steps. <laughs> um, in, you know, it, it can't be a drone strike in Turkey or Qatar. I think there's going to be some serious problems. Yeah. Well, let's um let's move on to the next uh, interesting development. Um, in the last couple of days, uh, thirteen countries led by the U.S. they organized um and issued a warning to the Houthis, basically saying, "Stop your strikes, or um we're going to be forced to 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 respond." Um, obviously, that's a a threat to the Houthis. Um, with that, within hours of that issuing that statement, the Houthis launched missiles. At a bunch of ships, with U.S. warships were nearby. Um, I believe they were anti-ship uh, ballistic cruise missiles, um, or ballistic missiles. Not obviously, that's a, I'm wrong. Uh, anti-ship ballistic missiles um, didn't hit anything. So the Houthis responded by saying, "We'll keep doing it." They came out. Then there's an article um, in the Wall Street Journal that talks about that the U.S. is now pondering the idea of striking Houthi targets. I mean, we're well over a month and a half. The Houthis have launched, I believe it's now 25 strikes against shipping. And I don't even think this includes the strikes that have been, that have actually targeted U.S., French, and British warships. Or even the strikes against Israel before that. Uh, exactly. Or the strikes against Israel that were, you know, that were targeted. Exactly. So we're probably talking somewhere around 40 to 50 strikes in total before the, the U.S. And only, you can only get 13 countries aboard. Um, think about that. Uh, the yeah. rest of the world is willing to sit out. Um, shutting off, base essentially the, the the severe curtailment of trade. Now, all of the container ships apparently are have bypassed the Red Sea. Uh, apparently, there's some oil tankers and whatnot that are being escorted. This is a um, well. Anyway, the, so now they're they're talking about a response to the Houthis. What are your thoughts on this, Benham? Is is it too is this threat too little too late? Do you think the U.S. is going to gather the will because of the fear? Of expanding this conflict, are we going to have the will to actually conduct meaningful strikes against the Houthis to get this up? The, the real uh, challenge there is meaningful, and th- this is the problem. I think in, in in our assessment of our adversaries who have what, what we like to call weapons of the week, you know, these kind of harassment attacks, drone even drone attacks that are being reported against some of these vessels, uh, drone warheads exploding right at or just near some of these commercial vessels. The goal is essentially to. Uh, spook these markets, to spook these politicians, to have essentially a military tool generate a political effect. And the Houthis, the desired political effect is more pressure on Israel, more market costs, uh, more American trepidation, and ultimately an end to uh, Israel's campaign uh, against Hamas and Gaza. And, And until it gets there, uh, it is constantly sussing out uh, American red lines, thresholds, tolerance, resolve, and risk. And the fact that it took so long to organize, the fact that it doesn't really have many regional countries in it, the fact that there already was an American task force operating in the area, the fact that um, there has been European drama with this new operation, Prosperity Guardian, and the fact that thus far the posture of the entire uh, military uh, yeah, security construct is deterrence defensive and, and, and deterrence focusing on deterrence by denial leads the Houthis to conclude that even if they are going to be struck – it is going to be something kind of like 2016 when we responded to the anti-ship cruise missile attack on the USS Mason. And I mean, fortunately, uh, 
the maritime threats then did stop. Uh, it wasn't like the Houthis have been actively firing into the Red Sea since 2016. But the, the problem here is the Houthi capabilities, both on land and at sea, have grown immensely since 2016. The Houthis now have anti-ship ballistic missiles. These, again, the first and only proxy of Iran to have paraded and used anti-ship ballistic missiles is the Houthis, not Lebanese Hezbollah. Hezbollah has reported to have received some of a similar kind this fall, but never shown, never paraded, never tested, and never even employed in combat. So these are game-changing capabilities. And yes, the Houthis are missing, but any strike that the U.S. does or any of these coalition partners does, and I think the U.K. will certainly be up there if the U.S. does some kind of uh, kinetic response or retaliation at, at, at Houthi-controlled territory in Yemen, any response that leaves in our estimation that spy ship, you know, they used to have the Saviz in the Red Sea or near the Red Sea. Now they have, uh, they replaced that in 2021, and we know it's been active or reportedly uh, it's been assessed as being active in 2023, helping the Houthis with targeting. Uh, it's another Iranian commercial vessel uh, called the Beshad. Any response that leaves this vessel still floating uh, is a response too short, in my view. Yeah, I concur. That should be the number one target. You know, get to the root of the problem here. You know, you want to send a message. The message needs to be sent to the master um, and the master are the Iranians. Um, I would take that out. I would go after um, the Houthi political leadership. Uh, Abu Malik al-Houthi uh, should be made to very uncomfortable. And I would be hitting some of these weapon sites, launch sites and storage sites. Uh, I'd take out whatever helicopters the Houthis have. They used it on a hijacking. And if you could identify where their their speedboats or whatever navy the Houthis happen to have, I would target all of that at once. Anything short of this is, to in my estimation, a tepid response. Uh, I suspect what we're going to get is a response like we've gotten with the Iraqis, which will the Iraqi militias, the Syrian militias, which we'll get to get to next. Um, and uh, that is just viewed as weakness. I mean, the fact that we have waited over a month and a half to even issue a threat. And in my estimation, a poorly worded, softly worded threat. There's not even a mention of Iran in there. And you know that the reason for that, the U.S. has identified, U.S. military and press releases has identified Iran as the culprit. But that the lack of mention of Iran is, is quite um, obvious. And in my opinion, that is very likely due to the other the 12 other members, some, some number of the 12 other countries that are involved in issuing this statement um, don't want to bring up. And... You know, there's there's whatever this response is going to look like. And by the way, everything you 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 assessed in terms of a target package, I agree with. Uh, the problem is that is that is something that would create the impression in the minds of the Houthis that this is this is meaningful and that this has the potential to be sustained. But given the politics of the coalition, we know that the response initially is likely not going to be meaningful and probably is designed to first try to send some kind of deterrent message. And in that sense, everything that you said that should be hit, and I concur should be hit, would be more, I think, like a defanging strike, which would tell you that there is something of a political strategy behind what we're doing. And again, and I think this always gets to the heart of our conversations, Bill, I don't have concerns about our military capabilities, even when we're forced to spend more to fire at cheaper things. I know we can innovate. Even when the Iranians go deeper, I know we can develop a bigger bomb. I know we can develop a more precise munition. I know there's a smarter bomb down the line. I don't have a single concern about that. Yes, the Iranians are forcing us to spend more and whatever, but what I have real concerns about is our ability to link those capabilities as part of a larger political strategy. Because even if we damage all of those facilities that you said, right? If I'm the Houthis, how do I respond? 
fire something at Riyadh. Um, and it, amid the drama of, you know, Saudi since early December saying, you know, please don't kinetically fire at the Houthis, <laughs> doing a reversal of the past eight years of, oh my God, the why irony are you not of helping this. us fire at the Houthis, <laughs> is I, I would beget that problem cycle. And again, this is where the adversary is using a military tool to effectuate a political outcome. Um, and it's because uh, they have the will to do it, and we don't. Yeah, they have they have the will and and the interest. You know, it, I don't I don't believe maritime security is peripheral for us. You know, you we could have different debates about land borders in Asia and Europe and the Middle East, whatever. But maritime security, this is literally we inherited this as an interest, a global interest as a national interest since we took over from the British in World War II, and that's why to me it's no surprise that unlike France, the, the UK is quite intent uh, on on helping us out uh, in, in this one. But uh, there has to be something shy of what you said, which I would like, but I don't think is immediately likely in the first one off. And the 2016 precedent, which is some coastal defenses and coastal radars. Um, and I think that really does have to include this IRGC commercial vessel just hanging out with targeting. Now, there is news, I'm, I'm sure you know, of another uh, destroyer. It's actually just a frigate, the the Persian word for destroyer and frigate is the same, and it's actually built off of British frigates. The UK sold the Shah and the Islamic Republic kind of retrofitted and allegedly has anti-ship cruise missile capabilities. It's an Alvand-class destroyer uh, called the Alborz, I think, that is sailing into the Red Sea. To me, again, this might test the resolve of the coalition, I mean, the Pr Prosperity Guardian, but even separate from that, I think this is something Task Force 153 should be doing, which I know it sounds like the height of ironies when I'm talking about freedom of navigation and looking to now prevent an Iranian ship from entering the Red Sea, but at a time when 40% of commercial trade has to be rerouted because of the attacks of an Iranian proxy, I don't think we should let the Iranian signal resolve with a 1970s-era frigate. They don't get to do a freedom of navigation operation in the Red Sea when they are the impediment to freedom of navigation. And, you know, you and I have talked about this before. To what degree can we hold the patron accountable? And I, I've since when we spoke and then the holidays and the new year, um, I've been seeing even more voices. And you know, this is a bipartisan problem, but even more voices talk about wanting to hold Iran accountable with no strategy of actually knowing how to hold Iran accountable and totally ignorant of the times when we did do things that were out of character for us to hold Iran accountable, like killing Soleimani. We were totally unprepared for the response because, newsflash, the Iranians respond to pressure with pressure of their own. And if you are not prepared, and that's the will to power, if you are not prepared to respond to their secondary or tertiary pressure, you probably shouldn't be putting a loaded gun in a shaky hand. And here... Uh, I, I got to say something or write something in the future. This is maybe for LWJ or whatever, but um, about why we haven't been able to do this or why we haven't been able to respond. Um, and I think preventing this freedom of navigation operation by this Iranian frigate would would go a long way in trying to get folks to identify a target that doesn't have to be destroyed, but that has to be reputationally prevented from accomplishing its mission, which their mission is to go into the Red Sea and say, look at us, we can enter this area when we're the impediment to freedom of navigation in this area, that has to somehow be prevented, physically blocked. I, I, uh, this has to be turned around. And and, th and this can actually help us with deterring the adversary in a whole host of other areas. The Iranian connective tissue with the Iraqis, the Iranian nuclear escalation, which no one is talking about. Uh, this is a safe way, in my view, to go after the patron. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, you know what? Maybe let, let the Iranian ship in there and 
some stray missile just happens to hit it. Nobody knows where it came from. Oh, well, <laughs> this is what happens when, you know, you... It's a war them. zone. It's a war zone. We don't know where it came from. You know, a, a little bit of guile, that would be nice. That would certainly put the, the Iranians on edge. Yeah, you, you, would, you would mention, look, I'm, anyone who knows me and talks to me about these issues knows that I am very reticent about getting, after our failures in Afghanistan and Iraq, our lack of will, um, the, the bo- debacle that is unfolding in, in Ukraine, where, look, it, if you read those Discord papers, you knew that that offensive was not going to work. And we spent tens of billions of dollars and greenlighted an offensive that was going to fail that led to the deaths of tens of thousands of Ukrainian soldiers and tens of billion, billions of dollars of equipment. This is what, you know, I'm very hesitant about getting involved in conflicts, but you made the point. I mean, this is this this is a basic issue. This is the sea lanes, and this is one that we should be able to do with our hands tied behind our back, blindfolded, and, you know, and uh, noise blocking earphones on. We should, we should be able to handle a problem like this and not elevate a second-rate militia like the Houthis into a regional power that is able to project power on the world stage by by diverting shipping through the Red Sea and the Suez Canal. This is absolutely absurd. This is something that we should be able to do, and we should, we should take it on. Our hesitance here is sending every wrong message to all of our adversaries and enemies, and I don't understand what the, the Biden administration doesn't want this war to expand. Well, newsflash, it has expanded. The Houthis have shut, they continue to target ships. They have shut down trade through the Red Sea and the, and the Suez Canal. And um, unless someone does something, this is going to continue. And this is no way. Um, the U.S. may as well just, you know, hang up its superpower spurs. Just... Last thing on this, I promise. Um, yeah, no. I think just recently, I, I'm sorry I need to flag it earlier, just, just came to my mind because now we're all concurring. Uh, there was that uh, General McKenzie piece in the, in, in the Wall Street Journal about, you know, showing mush versus showing steel. And I know we have different, you know, differing views and, you know, he's presided over an interesting period of time, I think we could say for, for CENTCOM's uh, effectiveness uh, in the Middle East. But the, the heart of, of his op-ed is essentially what we've been saying here, which is uh, the Iranians respond, the Iranians assess these things. Uh, they understand what a tough response looks like. They understand what a weak response looks like. And that's exactly when you use the word hesitant, that just reminded me uh, of, of his op-ed. So there may be more convergence here than meets the eye. And it may be convergence among everybody except the Biden administration. Um, and that's just, I think, just because in because of politics and because of philosophy, they just have the causal arrows wrong. Right now, they are afraid of escalation. They are afraid of a wider war. So they're being responsible in saying that they don't want escalation. They don't want a wider war. And the problem is they don't really see even the stuff they did in Iraq, which we'll get to in a second. They don't really see this uh, as trying to achieve parity with an adversary that is escalating, they see this as escalation on its own. And, and that's that's just a philosophical problem. If you are that hesitant, if you are that reticent, even achieving parity to the adversary, in your view, is a provocation. Yeah, I, I, you know, again, I just could not agree with you anymore. And, you know, whatever disagreements I have with uh, General McKenzie, um, and they are legion, he is correct on, on this score. Let's let's turn to Iraq. Um, the other day, the U.S. killed a commander known as Abu Taqwa al-Siadi. He's got a ton of names out there. It seems like every article has a different name for him. He's a, I would describe him as a mid-level commander for Harkat Hezbollah al-Nijaba. 
This is one of the multitude of uh, Iranian-backed Shia terror groups that have, this is Harkat Hezbollah al-Nijaba spawned as an offshoot of both the Sibahak and, and Hezbollah brigades, which themselves were offshoots of the Mahdi army, um, all, you know, fostered by the, uh, again, Iran and its Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and Quds Force. Um, this, he was, he, his driver and another individual were killed as they were driving into the, of the Nijaba headquarters in the heart of Baghdad, even, um, this is certainly a, a provocative strike by the U S. Um, not only was, you know, he, and of course, Harkat Hezbollah and Nijaba is also part of the Iraq's popular mobilization forces. This is the, um, grouping of militias. Most of them Iranian backed or the more powerful ones with the Iranian backed militias like the Sibaha and like Hezbollah brigades and Iman Ali brigades and, you know, the cave, Sayyid al-Shahada and others. Um, so the Iraqi government's angry. They're, the prime minister, uh, yet again, said it's time for the U.S. to leave the country. He called it the attack akin to a terrorist attack. Um, described Siadi as uh, as an Iraqi soldier and a martyr. I mean, and technically is, right? The popular mobilization forces are an official branch of the Iraqi military. They report directly to the prime minister. This is um, this is really, you know, look, it took 115 attacks by these militias. And that was the number from yesterday or the day before. It was probably been yeah, more, early, early January. Yeah, yeah. there's been more since uh, it took a, at that point in time, 115 attacks against U.S. bases for the U.S. to actually conduct its first meaningful strike. The previous six strikes either targeted, say, a vehicle that was involved in, in the aftermath of an attack. They targeted some weapons storage depots and safe houses for Hezbollah brigades. And then there were a couple attacks in Syria. Um, but this one actually, in my opinion, is the right idea, wrong timing, right? You will go after a leader. We're, tell, we're sending the, the message just as the Israelis did with Al-Rori um, and, uh, and Mosavi that, look, we can go after your leaders, right? The problem is, is we're far too late in doing this. I don't think this is going to deter. If this would have happened within the first 10 attacks on U.S. bases, it might have perked up some ears. But we've already sent the message that we are, we just don't know how to do this deterrence thing anymore, do we, Ben? No. And um, again, it comes comes back to that philosophical and political problem uh, that achieving parity is not seen as achieving parity with an adversary that is willing to escalate. And in, in, um, forgive the academic uh, reference here for a second, but there's a really old 50s, I think 50s or 60s book by Hermann Kahn, the, uh, I think the guy who founded Hudson Institute. It was that other German scientist. People said the Dr. Strangelove character was actually <laughs> yeah, based right. off of him. Okay. Um, yeah. He has a book on escalation and it's all about, you know, nuke from like conventional war to nuclear war. But there are three identifiable avenues of escalation he has. And you've seen the Iranians do it with their militias. And for lack of a better word, we're just taking it. Uh, avenue number one, I think, is geographic. You know, they can widen the hotspots for us. Uh, and avenue number two uh, is the weapon. Uh, you know, for the first time ever in November, and this this was responded to with that AC-130 gunship, um, but that, I think, just happened to be because it was in the area. But um, they used, for the first time ever, a ballistic missile uh, against our facilities. Uh, there are times when uh, strikes uh don't take life because of accidents or issues with their own munitions like the drone warhead that didn't explode when it hit the sleeping quarters of a barracks i'm not sure if that was in syria or in iraq i forget avenue three of herman khan's escalation but these two they've shown a willingness to 
strike in different areas and use different weapons. Uh, and that should really mean something to us. Uh, and, and the fact that it doesn't, we have to look at, well, why doesn't it? You know, the most viable excuse, viable and viable excuse from Biden administration is that, well, Iraq has politics. And it's exactly what you said about the prime minister. Well, if Iraq has politics, what is your Iraq policy? Again, that goes back to the, to, to the you don't have a diplomatic strategy. You know, under Trump and Biden, the Iraqis have been able to get waivers, energy waivers, so that, you know, they can continue energy trade with the Iranians. The Ira Iraqis have always been able to access dollars, too, for this period of time for their central bank. Who knows if there is some kind of, like, a money laundering back channel with them in Tehran on this front. The more they've been able to present the thesis that you need a strong, sovereign, stable Baghdad on its own, the more we've seen the Iranians try to puncture that strong, sovereign, stable Baghdad with their religious institutions, with their political institutions, with their economic institutions, and certainly with the with the, the militias inside the PMF, with their military institutions. Um, so I think this strike, I'm going to say it, is the most significant strike killing a militia leader in Iraq since the killing of Mohandas and Soleimani in 2020. Um, it has the potential to force the Biden administration, given this kind of political response from the Iraqis, to actually have to develop a ground game in Iraq. Now, do I think they're going to do that because no one wants to hear about Iraq and it's election year and the U.S. is also trying to force Israel to wind down the war vis-a-vis uh, -vis Hamas and Gaza anyway? Do I think they're going to take the bait and, and do this boring, risky, costly thing of a new Iraq policy? No, I don't necessarily see that as happening. But I do see the building blocks for it forming. You know, the designation of Kitaib Sayyid Shuada last year was good. There are slowly more responses, not the kind that we want, Bill, but slowly, quantitatively, at least, more responses in Iraq now, where for my criticism for the past three and a half years was you're absorbing in Iraq, you're only hitting in Syria. And now with this, which is the first potential targeted killing since 2020, it raises the potential to introduce doubt into the minds of the IRGC Quds Force and the militias how, when, and where will America scale this up? I mean, their assessment of us is that, no, we're not going to scale this up. But the fact of the matter is that these are the things that a different kind of administration or a different kind of polity uh, in Washington uh, would take and scale up if they were serious about, you know, handicapping Iran in Iraq. Yeah, it's, it's as if this administration just wants to sleepwalk through this. Well, Iraq, want to keep troops in Iraq to fight the Islamic State. However, we don't want to do what we need to do to keep those troops there. Why the administration doesn't want to make hard decisions? The Iraqi government isn't obviously is not protecting our forces. Um, these attacks continue, and these attacks are being carried out by the popular mobilization forces, which report to the prime minister. The prime minister says he doesn't like them, but is powerless to stop them because we all know he can. Yeah, this administration doesn't want to deal. It doesn't want to craft new policy. Um, it doesn't want to make hard decisions that could potentially force the U.S. to leave Iraq. And again, I mean, Iraq is telling us, we don't need you there. We don't want you there. We're capable of fighting the Islamic State. And then it's allowing attacks against the U.S. or either actively allowing them or is incapable of stopping them. At some point, we do have to ask the question, why are we in Iraq? But this administration doesn't want to ask these questions, or, and nor does it want to stand out there and defend why, you know, the, give out the reasons why we do need to remain engaged in Iraq. Um, he certainly was willing to make the case of why we didn't need to be in Afghanistan, but for some reason, Iraq is very, very different. Yeah. For some reason. Yeah. <laughs> and I think a lot of this is inertia. I just don't think this administration, I don't think this, this administration doesn't have policy. It just reacts to current events. And 
That is very, except for Iran, where it wants to negotiate with Iran. It's pretty much the only place where it has established policy. The rest is just reactionary foreign policy. Would you agree or disagree with that, Ben? I, I would agree, but I think we're kind of trending in this direction anyway. You know, two older books come to mind. I think Kissinger had one in the early 90s or 2000s, Does America Need a Foreign Policy? Uh, Aaron David Miller had one in the mid-2000s, Why America Can't Have and Doesn't Want Another Great President. Uh, you know, the, again, talk about building blocks. These are the, the you could talk about the moving from the imperial presidency to the celebrity presidency, presidency which we've had now for two or three periods uh, in, in, in modern American history. Uh, these are the building blocks of a different kind of how the politics of foreign policy is being constructed. And what you said is a criticism of the administration that they want to limp along. But I actually think that they could own that and they might own that and they might use that to win and they might even be rewarded for that, which is to say, yeah, leave well enough alone. Yeah, we just want to avoid these two or three things. And the avoidance of something rather than the creating or the effectuating of something, which again takes time, money, resources, and risks, is what they can present as a win. So I'm, I mean, I, I disagree with them, but I, at least I understand why they're doing it. Um, we're not building anything anymore. There is no new order. And this is a management exercise. And in a world of management exercises, it's all about how much time you got, how much is this going to cost, how many risks are associated with this. And what is this going to cost me, you know, politically? And those are the only variables that are moving here. And that's why vis-a-vis the Iran nuclear deal, that that fits right into how they see this, which is let's just push the clock back a little bit. Let's resurrect some domestic political dogma. Let's leave well enough alone. uh, And we just need something. What was the line from Vietnam? Uh, A decent interval. Decent interval, yeah. We need a decent interval. But look, that's what they hope for in Afghanistan. They hope the withdrawal would leave after the initial F estimates by the government, which I, I, this still pains me. I predicted the day that he announced the withdrawal that the Iraqi government wouldn't make it out by the end of the summer. The, the administration, the intelligence agencies, the military saying, oh, at least two years before they're under pressure. How can they get that so wrong? Because they wanted it that way. Because and their their estimations gave them, that's what Tom Jocelyn and I were saying, they are playing for a decent interval. And they never got it. And that's what made Iraq or Afghanistan look so disastrous because it collapsed as we were withdrawing. Um, you would think they would have learned from this, Benham, but hey, you know, sometimes you may want a decent interval, but sometimes you may not get it. Yeah, I don't I don't I don't ever want to say that everything has to be solved because there's a lot of things that need to be managed. I don't sure, ever want to absolutely. say that the White House doesn't deserve easy ways to move the to to to, to preserve the White House doesn't deserve easy policies because they certainly do. Uh, they, it would. It is immensely difficult to sit in the commander's chair and, and have to either send people to their deaths or to take more political and economic risks when you perceive the American public will not support those risks. So again, I, I am trying to be fully understanding of the administration's political, philosophical, and policy predicament. But on the other hand, I'm also trying to do as much justice to the threats, which are not a 2 out of 10, they're not an 11 out of 10, but they're a 6 or 7 and they're growing. And that is the part that also needs to be factored in into an honest equation of, okay, you can have this approach from America, but here is the approach from the region and it's getting worse. Yeah. And I think a good example of um, the reactionary and, you know, at at a, at a micro level, the administration didn't launch the first strike against the militias until a, a U.S. contractor was killed and several soldiers were seriously wounded. And when this came out, kind of made a big splash and just disappeared. But it was actually reported that that was what what um, got the administration to move. 
Um, they were willing to absorb blows against, you know, attacks. And this gets back to what you, what you admit, right? Yeah, they don't, they didn't perceive attacks against the base as being the problem because it didn't have any effect. Well, that's until it does, right? And, and that's what happened. And, and I think that's a great example of how this administration deals with foreign policy. I do get, sometimes you do have to manage a problem. Look, you know, Afghanistan was a problem that could be managed, right? We could have, with you know, it, maybe we didn't need to keep 2,500, maybe, you know, whatever. It was a it was a problem of management, but you know it's funny the the the, the times when this administration is decisive, it seems to it seems to be uh, the times when it's at its worst. But let's uh, move I, on. Oh, go ahead. Just you can respond. Tagline onto this. I, I have a friend who is you know more of a go between and closer to this admin than I am, uh, and the line the individual told me was, and it, it's it's designed to be funny, but talking about brushing off the earlier rocket and mortar and uh, drone attacks, terrorists gonna terror. You know, yeah. yeah. I mean, if you're willing to take that, I mean, that's fine. But you know, at that some was, point, that was, that was that was you know that individuals. <laughs> they are. Um, I like that. Well, let's uh, let's talk about the uh, Islamic State attack in Iran uh, at the grave site of uh, Qasem Soleimani, obviously the the previous uh, commander of Quds Force. Um, they're on. This was what was the day? Was it the January 3rd? January three? Yep, that was the anniversary of his death, the four-year anniversary of his death. And Islamic State sent two suicide bombers. They were able to successfully conduct that attack. I'm really surprised they were able to make it through on that one. Um, more than 90 people killed, hundreds wounded. The Islamic State has claimed credit for this attack. They said they, they called it a, quote, dual martyrdom operation, end quote. And they described Soleimani as the, quote, the hypocritical leader, end quote. Benham. Um, you know, boy, this is one of the, now look, the, the individuals who were killed, they're there to very likely civilians and military officers and IRGC who are going to, you know, remember Soleimani. It's hard for me to have sympathy, but yet I, they are human beings. Um, this is where you got evil on evil here. Um, what, do you, what do you make of this? How is the Islamic State able to pull off an attack like this at what should be one of the most sensitive sites on one of the most sensitive days for the Iranians? Yeah, just a, a couple of big, big picture things. Let me just start off with, uh, you know, my view is, yeah, th these were in fact largely civilians. Yeah, the fact that they're going out to turn out for Soleimani means they're pro-regime civilians, but they're civilians nevertheless. Exactly. I, and, I do. Uh, I have to remind myself. Yes. And 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 in this instance, yeah, it's just innocent loss of life, um, but also just from that point, just a needlessly innocent, condemnable attack, needlessly innocent loss of life, obviously condemnable attack, but. Now let me pivot to the the politics of the situation. Um, this is showing you the priorities of the regime. You know, we saw this regime bludgeon a woman for incorrectly wearing a headscarf and repress thousands upon thousands of protesters in over 150 different cities, villages, and towns for over a year systematically. Uh, and lock down those protests with instruments of fear and repression from low tech to high tech, from cyberspace to the street, uh, and route them. But this they couldn't do. This is the problem. This this is showing you the priorities of the regime. You know, uh, they can't even actually secure uh, the gravesite of a former commander because of you know at the moment this 
ideological axis of resistance, multi-front war they're fighting there. And this also just goes to show you, you know, Iran's president, yeah, he promised uh, uh, revenge and the the famous billboard area in Tehran, the, the Valley Asr Square, where in 2017, after the first ISIS attack in Iran, there was an IRGC mural with a hand and each finger was launching missiles. And that became the first time uh, in over a decade and a half that Iran publicly launched missiles uh, since the end of the Iran-Iraq war. Um, uh, from its own territory against the foreign target. That, too, was in response to an ISIS attack. Um, and this time that billboard read, uh, which is the, it means a hard answer, which is a play on words of which is hard revenge, which, you know, four years ago is what they promised in the aftermath of the killing of Soleimani. So likely something overt is coming. If it's ISIS or ISIS-K, well, then if it's ISIS, it might be pointed at Syria or Iraq or ISIS-K, someplace in Afghanistan. Very interestingly, this regime has absorbed threats from the East, particularly from the Taliban, particularly after the U.S. withdrawal, uh, wherein they were able to coordinate well with the Taliban, both against ISIS-K, but also against the U.S. force presence for a very long time. But then with the removal of that U.S. cap, there became more drama and and deconfliction turned into conflict with with the Taliban. Water rights, border security issue, tons of things like that. Uh, A lot has gone on, forgotten, uh, a play on the movie title, Forgotten on the Eastern Front uh, with Iran and Afghanistan when the world focuses on the Arab world and Israel and Iran's Western Front. Um, So there could be a real intensification uh, there for folks to watch as well. Um, and I would also uh, point a finger to this, which is um, I'm re- referencing a lot of friends today. Here's another one actually from Iran told me this, which is it's very funny because every time, you know, a drone factory explodes or something goes bump in the night, uh, they say, oh, nothing. It was just a fire alarm or oh, it was just it's just a, a drill. Uh, but when something legitimately happens and uh, is an is an overt massive explosion and kills people, uh, they immediately point a finger at Israel. Uh, so when basically the individual was saying when it is Israel, they say, you know, it was just a drill or it was just, you know, nothing. Go back to your lives. And when it isn't Israel, they will be quick to say, oh, no, it's it's Israel. Uh, and, and that was immediately what you had a lot of the regime elite do, which is point a finger of blame abroad. And then uh, somewhat carelessly, if I could use that word, a couple of Iran washers in Washington, you know, tried to paint the picture that this is Israel when it doesn't even fit the kind of pattern uh, of attacks that people believe Israel has sponsored in Iran in the past, which is, you know, like the killing of Fakhrizadeh, the killing of past nuclear scientists, or even some of these more limited attacks with quadcopter drones on Iran's nuclear missile or military installations. Uh, So not at all something that we've seen from the Israelis, and highly likely amid this war, not something from the Israelis. But, um, uh, it just goes to tell you that the analyst matters as much as that which is being analyzed. Yeah. And, and, go ahead. And, and the last point told about ISIS, I forgot to answer the, the ISIS part of your question. You know, our first ISIS attack in Iran in 2017, this is a, obviously a kind of domestic terror attack the regime has not witnessed since the 80s, actually, since the MEK, the Islamist Marxist Mujahideen, had been taking out uh, high-ranking Iranian leadership with with bombs um, but again, no major officials were known to be uh, killed here. This largely seemed to be kind of civilian bystander kind of folk, people in the area. And there's reporting that it was suicide vests. Uh, I think it, we ended up finding out in the 2017 attack that one of the individuals was Kurdish from the town of Pave, if I'm not mistaken. I wonder if any of Iran's uh, ethno-sectarian minorities uh, would have been part of this attack. We know there's obviously a Baluch insurgency with Jaysh al-Adel, formerly Jondullah. Uh, we know how the regime has been activating and fighting uh, both pre- and post-Damasa protests in Iran's Kurdish-speaking provinces. 
So when I saw news of the report, you know, guess number one was either an ethno-sectarian insurgent group uh, trying to target the regime at a public event or ISIS, and then it turned out to be ISIS. Yeah, you know, I one point you you had made about the, you know, pointing the pointing of fingers, right? You know, what, if they recognize that it's the Islamic State, what they'll ultimately say is, yeah, but the Islamic State was created by the U.S. and Israel anyway. Exactly. You know, so there's always this sort of diversion of back to the real great Satans. And in, in a bizarre way, it's an, an excusing of the uh, activities of, of terrorist organizations. Have no love for, for the. Ben, I mean, there was a there was a meme. I'll just end with this. There was a meme uh, many, many years ago, I think like 2016 or 2017, uh, well before the talk of the Abraham Accords and even the talk of getting the Saudis together formally with the Israelis. I think an Iranian news website took the Israeli and Saudi flags and merged it together. So you had the green backdrop. You had the sword on the white sword on the bottom of the Saudi flag, uh, but arrayed together in the shape of a star of David. So th- this is the kind of creative thinking <laughs> the regime and their elites are, are up to. Yeah, they, they just can't really point the finger where the finger needs to be. It has to be some grand conspiracy, just the way it often works there. Benham, great to catch up with you in the new year. We'll have a ton to talk about next week and looking forward to it. Thanks for your time today. Thank you so much. It's a, it's a pleasure and happy new year again to everyone. And hopefully it's a better year for us all. Thank you, everyone, for listening to today's episode of Generation Jihad. Just a reminder, you can listen to us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Please subscribe to Generation Jihad and leave us a review, preferably a positive one, but only if we earned it. Thanks again.